Welcome to The Dirt. This is your host, Brian Powell. Thank you for joining us again today. There's big news. And to help share that news, I have in studio with me today your Upper News Riverkeeper, Matthew Starr, appearing on the program for the first time, I think. It's been, it's I can't believe it's been, been on for a while. I'm not sure yeah. at this point. Well, there's big news. Uh, we have been uh, without a terrestrial radio FM home for a few months after uh, WSHA in Raleigh had to uh, close its doors and transfer ownership uh, to a out-of-state mm. uh, gospel media radio uh, company. But we have a new FM home starting in January 2019. We will be on 90.7 FM on your dials, broadcasting out of Durham, North Carolina, uh, WNCU. It's going to be... Go Eagles. It, go Eagles. It's going to be pretty awesome. And hopefully you'll join I'll us. I'll be there for the first time ever. It's Perfect. Gonna be great. Perfect. Awesome. While we have you here, uh, since you're the Upper News River Keeper... Your Upper News River Keeper. I work for you all. Do you have a, a interesting fact about the News River you'd like to share with us? Or rivers in general? What do you know about rivers that we don't? Well, a great fact was just shared with me recently that the largest lake contained within one country in the world is in uh, is Lake Michigan. So that was a fact I did not know. So you went with a fact that is neither a News river facts, nor yeah. a fact about rivers at all. Okay. Well, when you have something interesting, you share it. Right. And I want to share some interesting things with folks. Uh, it is obviously the beginning of December. It is the holiday season. And people are setting up their Christmas trees. Uh, many people are. Some people are not. Lots of people are not. Pretty much the day after Thanksgiving. I know. It's all going up. Yeah, they were everywhere. But I think a lot of people, uh, especially people who are, you know, environmentally minded, might have questions about whether or not having a Christmas tree is uh, a sustainable practice, what kind of Christmas tree, because you've got mm -hmm. your artificial trees, you've got your, you know, freshly cut real trees, uh, what, what the best option is uh, if you want to minimize your impact on the environment. Yeah. Right. So I have some helpful guidance. Uh, I want to start off with a couple of fast facts for uh, for people. The National Christmas Tree Association has recently reported that in 2017, there were 27.4 million real Christmas trees purchased. So your traditional. Your traditional, you're go going to the lot, they're yeah. cut, you know, you're growing them out yep. on the. And, yeah. Put them in the stand, water them. Right. Uh, so 27.4 million of those were purchased in 2017. 21.1 million new fake trees, artificial trees, were purchased last year. So it's a lot of trees. That is a lot. And what people may or may not know is North Carolina is one of the top producers uh, of real Christmas trees in the country. There's, I think, Oregon's number one. I think we're, no are we not number two? And we're number two. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, a fun fact. For live trees, for well, no, traditionally for the for the cut for the cut real yeah, trees, well, true. Okay. But uh, that you you raise a good point with your um, gaff there, which is that live trees. If people are trying to choose between artificial trees and uh, fresh cut trees, there is a third option that a lot of people have not considered, and that is live Christmas trees. Uh, in other words, they're potted, uh, living, breathing trees uh, that you can either rent for a period of time, and there are a couple of different companies who will come bring it to you, set it up, they'll even decorate your tree for you if you want, uh, and when Christmas season's over, when you tell them, they'll come, they'll take it down, uh, and they'll haul it back out and replant it, which is pretty cool. And then uh, the other option would be you go and you, you can buy uh, the potted tree and put it into your house, and then when you're done with it, you plant it somewhere. So, mm -hmm. you know, you find a, find a nice place that... So you said they would decorate your tree for they you? Will, they will even decorate your tree, yeah. Well, I mean, that's I one particular that. company, but... My, my uh, kids would 
have a mutiny over it, but but that sounds great to me. Yeah, the, the, that company, the price is a little steep, and that's yeah. where. And yeah. <laughs> uh, but but in general, uh, getting a live Christmas tree from a lot of these places it runs about the same price, uh, and that and you know that's another factor is Christmas trees these days are going for like seventy five bucks a pop, uh, sixty Ooh. if you're lucky, but. These you know, live Christmas trees is definitely the most sustainable uh, option if you're you know, looking to be particularly eco-friendly uh, this Christmas season. Uh, and then I would just say that things to consider with the other two options, the more, the more mainstream options, artificial Christmas trees are pretty bad uh, for the environment. Most of them uh, come from China. Most mm. of them, uh, so you're talking about all the transportation costs, mm-hmm. you know, to bring something and all the Lots carbon that's- fuels involved. Right. And they're also made out of like PVC steel um, and some other stuff that makes them uh, really intensive to produce in the first place and then uh, also hard to recycle. So the experts are saying that if you have an artificial tree, or if you're buying an artificial tree and you want to be environmentally uh, friendly, keep it and use it over and over and over again. They say like eight to 10 years uh, is so what buy is buy one needed. you like. Buy one you like and keep it around for a while. Yeah. I know my parents have one. We used to get the fresh cut ones growing up. Uh, my parents, since we, you know, since all the kids left the house have had a fake tree, uh, but They've had it for a while, and, and my aunts and uncles have had one since I was a kid. I mean, so you know, the things, they hold up. You, just, you know, if you stick with it, you keep it for 10 years, and then kind of the environmental impact sort of evens out because you're not buying a new one and, you know, blah, blah. So, but, you know, on the other side of things, you got your real trees, and they, you know, they're a crop. I think a lot of people, you know, they think that, there's these, you know, bulldozers and saws going into forests and old growth where you're cutting down these trees and stuff like that, but it's not the case. You go out to Western North Carolina, you know, you go up and you they're see... Farms. Yeah, they're farms. Yeah. You see all these Christmas trees growing in rows, just like you'd mm-hmm. see, you know, uh, rows of corn or something like that. And uh, taking them down is, is not that big of a deal, but they use pesticides and, you know, fungicides and, and all these different things that people use mm-hmm. on crops. That you they bring use, into your home. Exactly. So, and that's the other benefit of the live trees uh, is that you don't have those things on them typically, but you also don't have dead needles falling off. You don't have that fire hazard because it's not drying out. So, but for the real trees, probably a little more environmentally friendly than your artificial trees, uh, but try to find one that's growing them organically, buy locally so that you are diminishing the transportation impacts of the tree that you get, which is thankfully easier for folks in North Carolina because we grow them all here. And, you know, keep in mind that part of the reason they have to use a lot more of these, uh, you know, fungal things and stuff like that uh, on the Christmas trees when they're growing now is because of climate change and changes in the weather that have caused some diseases to, uh, you know, proliferate. Uh, more than they have in past years. So, if you were trying to find a live tree that could either be rented or replanted, how does this? Because this is news to me and it's very interesting. How do I find a company, or is it a simple Google search? Or it, it is mostly a simple simple Google search. Sometimes uh, it's a matter of the uh, Christmas tree farms who are who are doing the cut trees will have like ah. a segment of trees that they, because you plant them a little bit differently. So you plant them in these big kind of tub container things and you bury that underneath the ground. And so when it's time, and these things take about 10 years before they reach the height that you need to put them in your living room. At that time, they can just pull this container out, wrap the roots up in a you know burlap bulb looking thing and there you go. Uh, it's about the same price as long as you can make the trip. It's probably a little less convenient to find the places that do it, but for my searching, it's just been a matter of just a, hey, Google searching live uh, Christmas trees, Christmas tree rentals, that kind of deal, and you should be all set. Cool. Yeah, so there's some fun facts for you. Yeah. I want to uh, turn now to hogs. 
Mm. Yeah. There's hog news. There's always, always hog news. Don't they don't smell like Christmas trees either? Unfortunately, <laughs> sure don't. Uh, yeah, maybe Christmas tree air fresheners. Is, uh, <laughs> I don't know how many. You eat. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a large investment. Yeah, well, as as listeners probably know, we have a lot of uh, on the other side of the state. Uh, instead of Christmas tree farms, we've got a lot of uh, hog factories, and they produce a lot of hog waste. And what to do with that waste has been the subject of. Uh, a lot of debate and angst and pain and everything else for a long time now. We just had Hurricane Florence come through once again, flooded some lagoons where they store the hog waste on these facilities, killed a lot of hogs, a lot of chickens too, we'll get into that. And it just so happens that the permit that a lot of the hog farms are required to operate under is up for kind of it's time to refurbish it yeah so they they it's a renewal process that happens every five years and so we're gonna uh talk about that here in a second we've got uh colleague jamie cole who is a policy advocate at north carolina conservation network i want to start off by asking first we, we talked about these permits. Uh, we, you know, we talked about the fact that the, that the hog operations have been operating under permits that renew every five years since the 90s. However, uh, there have been uh, a lot of communities and stakeholders that have been excluded from the process of developing what these permits look like. Jamie, I'm wondering if you can tell me why uh, and how that is now changing. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. Um, yeah, so there's a, a lot of history there for why kind of the most impacted communities are generally not included in a meaningful way in the permit process or permit drafting process. And it, it usually goes back to the fact that the people with the most information and access to decision makers tend to be those with more resources. And so in this case where, you know, that includes uh, the industry, um, people who are um, understanding of how um, the permit process works. And so what we've seen is in the past, um, community groups have submitted comments and have given their feedback on permits. So five years ago, there was a stakeholder process, but um, it was determined that the the voice of the people most impacted was not included in that process. And so long story short, Title VI um, of the Civil Rights Act um, says that uh, entities receiving federal funds cannot discriminate based on a series of things, including race, um, in the issuance of things like permits, and in this case, the Swine General Permit. EPA issued a letter of concern to the Department of Environmental Quality a few years ago, saying that um, they had concerns that discrimination had played a part in um, the issuance of the permit, and that kicked off a series of conversations between the impacted parties and DEQ to come to an agreement on how the permit process and the drafting process should better include communities most impacted and including environmental justice. So fast forward to this current process, this current stakeholder process for the permit that will dictate the next five years of um, swine operation or waste management in North Carolina. And we're seeing DEQ expand the opportunity, um, including uh, opportunity for input, including uh, last week's uh, stakeholder um, an event. It was a full day of um, stakeholder engagement, including industry and advocates for communities and the environment. And um, you know, there was an opportunity for people to actually give direct feedback on the permit to DEQ staff. And there was an opportunity for people most impacted to directly speak to DEQ staff. And that looks very different from what um, uh, North Carolina has seen in the last several rounds of this, this very big 
permit. It covers over 2,000 swine operations in the state. And so it's a pretty big deal that um, people have a say for what will be um, a binding document for the next five years. Yeah, I mean, these communities have to, in, in our environment, largely have to deal with these facilities on a routine basis. And it was a, it was a really long day, but a really worthwhile day. Um, because to my knowledge, nothing like that had ever happened before. And as Jamie said, you know, the voices of affected community members have to be heard. You can't just issue a permit without taking into account their voices. And it's, it, and it's really an important process. And it's unfortunate that it took legal action to get there. However, it's important that we're here now. So next steps, um, you know, from, from where we are right now um, in the stakeholder engagement process on the, this draft, um, are you know folks really needing to get their voices heard um, and be a part of the stakeholder process, letting DEQ know that um, the changes that they have made currently are supported by community groups, and there are still um, additional changes that we'd like DEQ to consider and include in the draft permit. Um, and you know it's it's you know it's just reality that. Um, the industry is not looking to change much of of what they're currently doing. Um, I was going to ask, like, how does the industry, how are they responding to the draft that that you've seen? What are their? Um, I've heard I've I've heard they're not big fans uh, of what they've seen, but we're in a very early part of this process. What you know? How are they feeling? And what are the chances that uh, they? flex their muscles and get, you know, some of the things that they don't like changed or moved out of this permit? Well, we're hopeful that DEQ will um, not take out any of the improvements that have resulted from their Title VI negotiations with community groups. But the reality is this is a stakeholder process. And so um, industry's opinion and, and, and comments and um, and worries all go into what DEQ is considering right now. And so that's, again, why it's really, really important that people who support these additional protections um, have their voices heard, um, submit comments to DEQ, and um, the DIRT FM will um, also um, share, I believe, will share some information on how to take action, um, including the email address for um, the staff at DEQ who are receiving comments and North Carolina Conservation Network actually has a petition up right now that we can share the link for that. Um, for everyone who's listening who wants to take action, you can you can take action with the very simple, um, some very simple steps. A couple minutes, it's worth it. You're listening, you care about water, you care about the environment. You may not live in one of these communities, but we're all North Carolinians and sign the petition. It's simple, it's easy, and it's worthwhile. All right, well, uh, thank you both uh, very much for talking about that with us. It's extremely important. It's also complex uh, on a variety of different levels. So hopefully listeners have a, a better kind of understanding about the landscape uh, of what that's looking like. And obviously we'll continue to keep people updated as uh, as the process moves forward. and. You know, should there be any more hog factory CAFO related uh, news, we will also bring that to you. And, and like Jamie said, check out the Dirt FM on Twitter for more information about this, for the petition links, uh, all that kind of stuff. Do it. While all that's been happening, um, you know, the North Carolina General Assembly has been in a post-election lame duck special session now for a couple of weeks. We're going to wait and see whether it's going to stretch into a third week. It looks like, it looks, was, from what I just saw, it's uh, stretching into next week as well. Yeah, so there's, there's some uh, voter ID uh, and election fraud issues that are kind of taking center stage uh, with the special session so far. They did pass a hurricane relief bill. 
Matthew's he, shrugging his shoulders. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of, yeah. It didn't go far enough naturally, but it was also, also wasn't bad. So, no, yeah, you know. it was pretty, pretty mundane in terms but, of a bill. But coming up in 2019, all the newly elected folks, newly re-elected folks, are going to sit down uh, for the long regular session. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not another special Ooh. session. Uh, a regular order for everything. And there's a lot. Uh, shaping up that they might be tackling. And so I sat down and had a conversation with Grady McCauley, policy director at uh, North Carolina Conservation Network, to kind of preview what 2019 looks like in the legislature and some of the other issues that are going to be tackled in 2019 uh, outside of that building as well. Here's that. What are you seeing, you know, when you're looking into your crystal ball for 2019? Right. So one of the more really interesting things is is understanding whether this legislature will behave differently than it has recently in recent years. And and Republican leadership in the House and Senate has lost their supermajority. So the coming into this new biennium, the governor has the ability to veto bills. And if the Democrats hang together in either chamber, actually stop legislation, most legislation from moving through. So that may change the kind of things that get discussed or how they get discussed. Um, in terms of what we expect to come up in the legislative session, this is interesting. When you look across environmental issues, not just in the legislature, but across North Carolina, uh, I think there are three that really stand out as the most critical overarching issues. One of those, of course, is climate change. Um, another is the pervasive presence of chemical toxics in our water, in our consumer products, in, in all the different areas of our life. And of course, that has a cumulative impact on, on many of us. And the third is equity, that a lot of the environmental risks and harms are not distributed evenly across our society. They're concentrated in communities that are low wealth, and traditionally they've been concentrated in communities of color. Um, and that's not fair. People are recognizing it's not fair, and we need to address it. Interestingly, all, you see all of those showing up in real public policy issues in real time, and I think we'll see those in the 2019 legislative session. So I, I hear, I mean, one, I, you know, I want to talk about um, the chemical issue because, right. you know, we've talked a lot about Gen X on the show. Uh, it seems like there were more than a few uh, lawmakers, legislators, candidates uh, who tried to make a lot of, uh, draw a lot of attention to this issue last year, either in campaigns that they were running uh, or, you know, you know, we saw the, the uh, House Committee on uh, River Quality uh, do a lot, hold a lot of hearings about Gen X and, and the governor uh, took a lot of action and, and spoke out frequently on the issue of Gen X and some of these other uh, forms of chemical contaminant. Is that, is that uh, kind of political energy going to carry over when people are actually sitting down to craft and introduce and push legislation in 2019? I think so. So the Gen X story, the story that Gen X was in the Cape Fear and has been for three decades, um, broke in the summer of 2017. And what we've seen since then is that that was just the tip of the iceberg. So Gen X was, it was a chemical um, coming from a facility run by Chemors, formerly DuPont, on the Cape Fear River south of Fayetteville. Um, that, as a result of enforcement actions by the Department of Environmental Quality of the Cooper Administration and also lawsuits by the Southern Environmental Law Center, has resulted in a consent order that should almost totally eliminate the discharges from chem ores. That's good, but what we've learned in the process is that GenX is just one of a category of chemicals that are perfluorinated compounds um, folks call them PFAS, perfluorinated substances. And um, there are over 3,000 of those in the stream of commerce. Others in that family are showing up in drinking water, in our river water, in other parts of the state. And it's a problem that, that isn't going to go away. So even if Chemours is dealt with, um, we are still going to find these perfluorinated compounds elsewhere. And we don't have, we know that they don't break down, that they are toxic. We don't have health or regulatory standards for most of them. Um, and a recent study, I think, just uh, indicated that some of these are showing up in uh, the human body. That's right. Um, that's right. Some of them accumulate in the human body. Like once you ingest them, they tend to stay there. Others move very rapidly, but they move throughout the environment and they'll move into into plants, into crops, they'll just move and move and move. Um, and, and they all don't break down fast. 
Um, so they're a real environmental problem, and we need our state environmental agency to limit the discharges of these and adopt standards for them. In the 2018 legislative session, the administration asked for money for the agency to be able to go out and monitor for them and to be able to ultimately regulate them. And the legislature made what I think was clearly a policy mistake, but also a political mistake, and did not provide the money that the agency asked for. And a number of legislators had very close races, some of them lost, and it seems pretty clear it's because they didn't deal with this issue. So we'll see if that we'll see if, if anybody learns a lesson going right, into, I was <laughs> into 2019. But from a policy perspective, it's clear that the agency needs the money to do its job. And in terms of protecting human health across the state, we need to get a handle on these chemicals. Do you expect that that's an issue that the governor will continue to elevate and, and try to pressure the legislature into action on? I hope so, but this has two parts. One is the agency needs the resources, but the agency also has authority and it needs to take action. Um, and even if it doesn't get a dime more in resources, there are things it can do. It may not be as smooth or as convenient for industry as if the agency has the resources to, to, to face things in more gently, but there are authorities the agency has and we're asking them to use to limit the discharge of these chemicals. So. At the top, you mentioned three topics. Yeah. One was the chemical compound issue. The other uh, two, uh, climate change and equity. Right. And when I, those are all extremely important issues uh, just to people generally, to me. But when I hear them, I also see what I'm imagining are going to be red flags uh, for uh, a, a, a still very right-leaning political body at the General Assembly, climate change is uh, obviously a, a very polarizing phrase uh, mm -hmm. today, uh, and the same goes with the issue of equity. Environmental justice uh, is a, a concept that I think a lot of people still don't even uh, really understand, much less are they willing to talk very much about, at least in those terms. So. What does Hurricane Florence offer an opportunity and and a kind of right. cover for people who you know might avoid climate change, quote unquote, and you know environmental justice or equity, quote unquote, to do something on these issues, or or they what what's that going to look like? Right. So the science on climate change is really clear. We're putting way too much carbon dioxide and other climate forcing greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. We're seeing the concentrations rise in the atmosphere. We're seeing temperatures increase. The science is very clear and there have been several massive scientific reports that have come out of international bodies and domestic bodies and the US government over the last several months. We have to act on climate change. And I think as much as the, the current legislative leadership has done nothing direct on climate change in the last eight years um, at the state level, I think the reality of this science, that this is not and cannot be a partisan issue ultimately, that we have to take action to preserve our economy, to preserve human life, um, is sinking in. So I'm hopeful that we will ultimately see action. But what I'll also say is you don't have to believe in climate change to do the things we need to do to deal with climate change. Uh, in, in the first instance, we need to dramatically increase our renewable energy production and move away from fossil fuels. We would be wise to do that if climate change didn't exist, we'd be wise to do that anyway because it pays for itself. We can be a lot wealthier state if we move away from fossil fuels, if we use resources that we're not sending money out of state to buy like natural gas, but are harvesting the wind and sunlight that falls on our state. And that keeps the money circulating in our state. So from an economic perspective alone, we should be aggressively promoting clean energy. And there are, uh, there are legislators who will not talk about climate change and may not even believe in climate change, but are aggressively supporting clean energy. And I hope we see that expand in the legislative session. You mentioned um, Hurricane Florence. The other, the other side of the coin on climate change is that no matter what we do, we can do a lot to make our lives better, but we have already committed to a certain amount of warming by the pollution we put in the atmosphere in the past. And we needed to address that. And Hurricane Florence, the intensity of it, the way it behaved, the fact it dumped so much water on us, the fact that it's the second 500 plus year storm 
in three years, um, Hurricane Matthew being the other one in 2016, is a signal that the climate is changing and that we can expect to see storms that we thought were very rare, like a 500 plus year storm, we can expect to see those more often. We don't know how much more often yet. Um, there are a set of policies we need to put in place as we recover from Florence that would help us not suffer the same kind of damages in the future. One thing that's been something of a disappointment in this fall is in October after Florence and then again just now in December, the legislature's come in and appropriated about $300 million each time for disaster recovery. Uh, not enough of that has gone to protecting us against future disasters. A lot of it's gone into rebuilding stuff that got damaged, which is fine, but we also have to look ahead and rebuild in a way that insulates us from, from future damages. And it's my hope that we'll see a lot more of that kind of thinking in the 2019-2020 biennium. So let's talk about energy, you know, something that you touched on briefly there. What, what does the landscape look like going into 2019? Um, we talked a little bit last year uh, about modernizing uh, the power grid and, um, right. and improving infrastructure there. And, and, you know, we had the rate cases, which uh, uh, began to tackle that conversation. So what, what does, you know, grid modernization look like in 2019, other kinds of energy policy, coal ash, what does it look like? Right. So, so if you were to pick the single biggest piece of environmental energy legislation from this last two-year cycle that we're just finishing, it would have to be um, House Bill 589. It was the, the energy legislation um, that was enacted by the state legislature in, in the spring of 2017. What that did was commit Duke Energy to accept um, a certain amount of solar. And it also included, this was put in at the last minute by the Senate, included a moratorium on onshore wind, development of wind power in North Carolina, that should expire at the end of this year. And it's about time because that's, that's an area of potential real economic growth for North Carolina. Um, it also launched a bunch of processes at the North Carolina Utilities Commission to negotiate rules on how people connect their renewable energy systems to the grid um, and how people get rebates for, for solar on their houses, a bunch of stuff like that. A lot of those processes are still ongoing, and that will continue to go on in 2019. The big issue you mentioned is grid modernization. So the grid is the system of of high voltage lines and smaller wires that bring electricity from places it's generated to our house, houses and businesses. Um, it's in need of upgrading, but what that means can take different forms. Last year, Duke Energy went to Utilities Commission and said, hey, let us raise everybody's rates um, and do grid modernization, but a lot of what was in their proposal was just maintenance that they hadn't done and they needed to catch up on. Um, when advocates, environmental advocates look at that, what we mean is there's all sorts of opportunities to increase energy efficiency. We're losing a lot of energy in the grid we have. We can also upgrade the grid so that it can support distributed generation from solar and wind power so that it, that electricity we use doesn't all have to come from giant coal or natural gas or nuclear plants. A lot of it can come from just down the street from a small solar grid or from local wind power. And that's an important part of how we need to deal with climate change. So how the grid gets modernized and exactly what the utilities are able to raise our rates to pay for is a really critical piece of that. And in one way or another, at the Utilities Commission, or the utilities may come back to the legislature with that question, it's likely to see significant movement in, in this biennium. Thank you very much, Grady, for talking to us today. I think that is a very uh, helpful look at you know some of the things that we can try to pay attention to and, and learn more about as 2019 begins to take shape. And I'm sure uh, as there is every single year, there will be something that pops up uh, that we didn't expect or, you know, that, that comes out of uh, seemingly left field. When that happens, we will bring you back on <laughs> to, get, to talk about it and tell us uh, what's happening. And, and I appreciate it uh, very much that you uh, continue to, to come back and talk to us. Thanks for having me and I wish you a happy new year. Thank you, you too. All right. Matthew, something is bothering me. Uh oh. There's a lot of things that bother me. So Well, there's a lot of things that bother yeah, me too. I'm, see where this is headed. But I there's just like a lot of things bother me. There's mm -hmm. a lot about uh the 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 landscape of, of rules, regulations, and laws with regard to the environment in North Carolina that kinda 
are you know wrong, misguided, frustrating. Need, frustrating, need tweaked, they don't go far enough. There's you know name it. Yeah. But there there are three things. Three things that are just beyond crazy to me. Three crazy things that just defy common sense mm. at at every level and you know I sit around and they eat at me. You mm-hmm. know? I'll be like at Thanksgiving and I'm like just sitting people are talking about their, <laughs> you know, their years and like personal updates and I'm just sitting here like just, but these things, man, they're just like You're just stewing in the corner. Yeah, I'm just stewing <laughs> in the corner. Uh, do you want to know what they are? Yeah, well, yeah. I, not, I've got some guesses, but but sure. Let's, you let's seem see. disinterested, is why, because I'm looking at your expression is not very <laughs> no, eager to hear what I have to say. Yeah. So I'm maybe I will just skip it. I don't. <laughs> Please. Okay. I'm glad you want to know because I really want to tell you three yeah. crazy things. You would tell me regardless. So it's three. Fine. Crazy things about North Carolina environmental law. All right. All right, go. Number one, uh, and this is hopefully not going to be relevant going into 2019, but it is the case right now that there has been a ban on new wind power projects Mm. in North Carolina. Wind has seen just explosive growth. Uh, both in efficiency and cost and productivity everywhere. I mean, there are a couple of examples that were put in before this moratorium on wind was put in place Mm -hmm. in North Carolina that are doing really, really well. Uh, There is uh, one farm in particular that was hit uh, by Hurricane Florence and was operational throughout the whole thing. We've got wind power in places all around the country, in Europe. China is putting in tons of wind. It is cheap. It is productive. It absolutely renewable. should. It is renewable in the clean sense. It's just common sense at this point that we would try to encourage the development of more wind projects in the state of North Carolina, that we would be a leader in clean, renewable energy in the state of North Carolina. And we're not. So do, you, do the legislators think we're going to use up all the wind with our fancy turbines and there won't be any more? I mean, what is, what is their big... The conversation about why Wind's there's a wind blow. board... Yeah, I mean, but, it is, and we're not taking advantage of it. And to me, yeah, it's just completely... That is, it's that just is. completely bonkers to me. Let's move on. Well, it's on. just stupid. Number two. You know, we talk a lot about uh, Gen X on this show, mm-hmm. uh, PFAS and, and C8 and these... Uh, chemical compounds, perfluorinated compounds that are being produced by the DuPonts of the world, mm-hmm. by the Dows of the world, by the Kimors, former, formerly of DuPont of the world, who, who dumped Gen X into the Cape Fear River, contaminated wells in Fayetteville, and uh, the drinking water of a quarter million people in Wilmington, North Carolina. And one aspect of this entire fight has been the fact that in North Carolina and in the rest of the country for the most part, it is, you don't have to actually prove that a chemical is safe to humans before you are legally allowed to discharge it into the waterways that serve as drinking water sources for those same humans. To me, that's crazy. Like I, I so t- in theory, what we're saying is that you can dump whatever you want to in the water and then someone else has to prove that it's harmful. Someone has to get sick. A lot of people have to get sick. Or and like, those people have to be able to show that it came from Causation, this. yeah. And to me, that, so essentially, the legal landscape uh, with regard to most chemicals, and there is a limited very, very limited subset of, uh, of chemicals uh, and other substances that are regulated as hazardous and as, you know, different mm-hmm. uh, and under the Clean Water Act and different things. But it's very small. And, and these kinds of chemicals, they're coming up with new chemicals every single day. Most of them have no names. We don't know what is in the stuff that they're discharging from all mm-hmm. these facilities. They don't have to tell us what's in it. 
Nobody knows how to test for it because they don't know that these things exist. And so nobody has any idea what they're putting into their bodies, whether it's hurting. All of the people who are getting drinking water from places where these chemicals are dumped into the water are, are human lab rats. Yep. And to me, that's crazy. Yeah. Like, that just defies common sense. That's crazy. Prove it's safe before you can put it in my water. Not, it's really easy. Not asking a whole lot not, there. It's just common sense. Yeah. That's please cute. don't poison me. Right, please. And number three, this is a weird one. And I think a lot of people don't know this. We were talking about hog farms. And since Hurricane, I think it was Hurricane Floyd, 1999, mm. uh, maybe it was before that, all uh, because of the storm's impact on the hog uh, facilities in eastern North Carolina, laws were passed that required the hogs uh, operations to have permits, the permit that we were yep. discussing earlier. However, exempted from that permitting requirement were the vast majority of poultry operations. Mm -hmm. So anyone using quote unquote dry litter poultry, and I won't get into that, but it's most, it's by far the majority of poultry operations. They don't have to get a permit at all. Nope. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're on the county by county level, there might be some like very localized permits that they have to get here and there, but actually mostly that doesn't exist. But at the state level, they do not have to get a permit to discharge, you know, ammonia that comes from these places, all of the nitrogen and phosphorus mm -hmm. that we're talking about. Phosphorus is a huge, huge source of phosphorus in the water. And they can just come. They've, I've been to the houses in, 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 in people who have listened to the show for a long time have heard, uh, have heard some conversations about this. We have been to the houses where just past the fence, 100 yards, somebody has set up a huge warehouse full of thousands and thousands of chickens mm -hmm. that are spewing all of this waste. Created, they're, they're absolutely killing property values. They're causing respiratory problems for people. They're ca causing other problems for people. And there's basically no notice. They just pop out of nowhere. They don't have to tell anybody. And they also don't have to report where they, they, where they are or no. anything to the state. That's crazy. So the state of North Carolina has no idea where or how many of these operations exist across the state. Yeah. That is crazy. And thanks to groups like, you know, Sound Rivers and Waterkeeper and, and other Riverkeeper groups, you know, there's at least some kind of survey of, yeah. you know, some places, but it, it's I mean, necessarily they're popping up incomplete. faster than we can keep track of. Right. Uh, in between Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Florence, I, you know, there was an estimated several hundred, I think, popped up um, facilities, and we just don't know. They're, they're, they set up quickly, and they're everywhere. Yeah. And like I, can, I can go to the map right now and show you where every swine facility is. I can tell you there are 62 swine facilities located in the 100-year floodplain. Other than the mapping that we have done as, as Sound Rivers and Waterkeeper Alliance and other river keepers, that's the only information that shows where these facilities are public, that's publicly available. That's it. I can't tell you any of those other questions. And since they don't know where they are, obviously there are no inspectors or regulators who are showing up at these places to make sure that they're complying with any kind of environmental laws whatsoever. So. Yeah. That's number three, and to me, that's totally crazy. And I just wanted to get those things off my chest because like, why? Yeah, we we deserve to know. We deserve to know what's in our drinking water. We deserve to know where industrial scale pollution is happening. We deserve to know these things. We do, and and we deserve clean energy and and the opportunity to pursue clean energy production and those jobs and everything that comes with it. Anyways, those are my three things. They've been on my chest. I got them off. Well, they're still there, but <laughs> I wanted to share it with you and with listeners. So thanks for uh, you know giving me the chance to and, and listen to Well, those to are that. certainly three kind of bang your head against the desk things. Truly, that's for sure. Truly, truly. All right. So finally, for our last segment today, uh, we were in. Detroit recently for the Facing Race Conference where I was able to catch up with a few folks and I want to share one of the interviews from that conference. It is with uh, the 
some representatives from Working Films, mm. which is an organization out in, based in Wilmington, but it's a national mm -hmm. uh, organization, has national reach. And they, they specialize in uh, films, uh, film production and distribution uh, that, uh, of films that are kind of social justice, environmental justice, environmental oriented. Mm -hmm. And they were up in Detroit at the Facing Race Conference putting on uh, a race flicks series of documentaries from local filmmakers of color. Uh, they've also been showing uh, a movie called The Devil We Know in North Carolina, around North Carolina. Uh, it's fantastic. It's about Gen X and C8 and, and that kind of thing. So Working Films uh, is great. I wanted to talk to them about why they see film as a particularly yeah. powerful medium for, you know, achieving social change and awareness. And they were happy to talk. So here's that interview. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I'm Molly Murphy. I co-direct Working Films. We're a nonprofit that uses film to advance uh, social and environmental justice. Uh, we're based in North Carolina, but work all over the country. Um, and yeah, a lot of times we use film to translate complex issues, uh, policy and otherwise, that can help motivate people to take action. And I'm Hannah Hearn. I'm the impact coordinator at Working Films. So, uh, why, why film? Like, why, why is film the most impactful medium uh, to achieve social justice and environmental justice? There's power in storytelling. Uh, it's a lot more interesting, in our biased opinion, than listening to a lecture. Um, you get a personal experience through film that even if it's not your own, I, um, what we've seen is that it's compelling to people. It both transfers information, but it also transfers an emotional experience that motivates people to do something. And our bottom line at Working Films is really like giving audiences something to do that matters, something that's accessible and meaningful, um, so that you know when the lights come up, um, they can be a part of what's next for progress. And a lot of um, what we're trying to uplift right now is accountable storytelling. And so having authentic representation of the people featured um, in the documentaries that we show. Um, and so that's been great to have people be able to reflect on their own communities, see, you know, people that re they relate to on the screen. Um, and so that's been a big part of what we're trying to do. And so is that about authentic uh, representation on the screen or behind the camera as well? Is it important for the filmmakers themselves to be from the communities that they're telling stories about? Yeah, so um, it's great if the film team is part of the community that's being represented. Um, and if they're not, we like to see them have um, an accountability process to those people featured. What does that look like? So it's really, we're actually, we've developed a series of principles of accountability that were sourced with grassroots community-based organizations and filmmakers, uh, really about just principles of representation. Those are online at storyshift.net. Um, but the reality is, is that within filmmaking, there's a long history of um, outside storytellers coming and telling the stories of people directly affected by issues. And we're not trying to say that that's never okay. It's just about having processes while films are in the works and before they're complete to have um, community members be able to weigh in. And what you have to ensure is like as a filmmaker and storyteller, you have a responsibility. You cannot, it's not your story, it's, it's someone else's story. Um, and what we're trying to do as an organization and kind of you know, just working in the documentary space. And also I'll explain in the organization space, um, make it unacceptable not to have a level of accountability um, with those who, who really should own the story, who are living it day to day. And so we're lifting up the experiences of filmmakers, both the successes and the challenges and trying to work through um, what best practices are, kind of just opening with that being a priority and then working with the realities of um, filmmakers coming together with, with residents if they aren't, you know, of the same experience. 
So environmental justice is, um, and issues around environmental justice are, are obviously a focus of a lot of the work that you do. Um, one of those things is um, uh, related to the Gen X contamination saga in North Carolina. We've talked a lot about that on the show. Um, Hannah, I know that you are helping to facilitate screenings of a documentary called The Devil We Know all around the state. What does that look like? Um, how's it going? So the tour is going really well. Um, we've been in a lot of different cities in North Carolina, including Boone, Charlotte, Greensboro. Um, we were in Raleigh. Um, and then coming up, we have a screening in Asheville. We also have a screening in Washington, North Carolina. Um, and then we're trying to coordinate a few other community screenings for that. Um, we're also looking at maybe taking it out of the state into um, other areas that have been affected just by toxins in the water. Um, and so it's been really good. People have been very engaged with the film um, and the take actions that have been talked about afterwards. Yeah, and just to, just to be clear um, for anybody listening, if you don't know, The Devil We Know is a documentary uh, about a contaminant called C8 um, that impacted communities in West Virginia and Ohio um, that was a chemical produced by the DuPont company. Um, it is a molecular cousin to Gen X, um, which is was produced by DuPont, now Kimors um, in North Carolina. So um, it is a film that mostly talks about the community in Parkersburg, West Virginia, but um, it ties into very closely um, what people and communities are experiencing in North Carolina. Yeah, and one thing I want to add about that is we did, we screened it in Wilmington and places that are east of um, where Gen X has been released. But part of our approach is building solidarity and connections across the state. So that's why it's important that Gen X is affecting, you know, Fayetteville East, but we are having screenings in Asheville and Washington and other parts of the state to get enough public outcry to make sure that decision makers hold Kimors accountable. Um, and that we build better connections among each other across the state if we care about the environment. Um, and really, you know, we have the beach is being affected and people love that across the state. Um, but yeah, we found it to be really um, valuable for organizing infrastructure and valuable for um, building connections across the state to, to do that. And the turnout has been pretty good, right? I mean, I heard Wilmington was pretty amazing. Yeah, I think we had... Over 300 people come to the Wilmington screening, um, and the discussions that happen after the film have involved, um, you know, people who are experts in this issue, um, river keepers. Uh, we had Derp Carter, who's featured in the documentary and is from the SELC. Yeah, Southern Environmental no, Law Center. Yeah, make sure I got that right. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of good work that's happening around the issue now um, because more people are learning about it. And um, other organizations are working on getting Gen X added to the toxicology report um, from the EPA. So, Are there any other environmental justice, environmental-related projects, films that you're working on um, or have your eyes on right now? Yeah, we actually, um, Hannah can share more um, about some of the other projects, but our next big topical focus will be on just recovery and how we prepare and respond to climate disasters and ways that are equitable and just. Um, so it's definitely timely for um, where the majority of our staff is based and it's timely um, across our whole entire state now that we've been hit by Florence and Michael. Uh, so we um, have initiated two grants. We uh, began a film fund last year trying to, to start supporting films that might not exist yet that ought to. And that's rooted in listening to organizers about what they need and want um, and putting a call out on, uh, you know, supported two films that look at hurricane, both response and preparedness. And then we'll be um, uh, putting a call out for additional media to help to coordinate um, public engagement around the needs for um, disaster preparedness and what we're going to do to respond to it. Um, um, let's shift focus for a second to the Facing Race conference that we're at now. Y'all have been pretty busy. Tell me about what you're doing and how it's been going. 
Yeah, so um, we co-coordinated the Race Flicks program um, with Facing Race, and we had five films that we chose out of, what, over 50 that were submitted. Um, and we really had to focus on the accountability aspect and the um, authentic res- representation. And um, so we had those five films, and then we also had the Detroit Narrative Agency. Um, we had that block of short films come and screen. Um, and so they are Detroit-based. They're a cohort of five filmmakers, five um, black and brown filmmakers, and a lot of them are just starting out. Um, they've never made a film before. And so we had a lot of people come, you know, be a part of those discussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's the really turnout did. has been incredible. I mean, it was a really uh, diverse array of films on a variety of topics. And the conversations were just really um, powerful. I, what I noticed is a lot of people from the places featured being in the audience. So one of the films is called The Circle and using the ancient rituals of healing circles and communities that have experienced uh, police violence and other trauma. And East Salinas was in the room. <laughs> and for uh, dispatches from Cleveland, Ohio was in the room. You know, everyone was saying their zip code. Um, and, yeah, it's just interesting to to see what, um, compelled people and brought people out. Um, we were excited. Water Warriors is one of the films that was featured, and while it was still just an early work in progress, it began with a photography exhibition that uh, Working Films had toured a pilot exhibit of through North Carolina when fracking was a threat. Um, through uh, We did a, a couple of installations, including in Pittsburgh and in Wilmington, to elevate um, public knowledge that prospecting was happening and teach about what fracking was and also show this level of resistance uh, that the Mi'kmaq tribe in New Brunswick, Canada, um, what led them to work across racial divisions to stop an energy company from destroying (laughs) their land and their water. And what was so interesting is in Pittsburgh, you know, residents really wanted to find out the nitty gritty about the process. Um, you know, when did they decide to block the road? Like, what happened before that? And at that time, it was just a photography exhibit, but that open community, you know, discussion and questioning and um, taking in the project and its form of photography helped to inform the film that now exists and screened here. So it's really got deep roots in North Carolina. Um, and again, that's Water Warriors that um, looks at how... Uh, Native and white residents in New Brunswick, Canada, stopped uh, energy company from uh, fracking there. And I think it's safe to say that the conversation that you helped ignite has been successful um, in holding off fracking operations in North Carolina. So um, that's huge visual storytelling. What is next for working films? We have lots going on right Anna <laughs> lots of projects <laughs> um, yeah we're um, about we had um, our impact kickstart program happen this past year um, and we are trying to organize what that's going to look like coming up in the next year um, and then we also I'll just tell what impact kickstart oh. is uh, we <laughs> give away basically free services to underrepresented filmmakers whose films have potential to catalyze Uh, social and environmental justice and we essentially give away our consultation and planning services and help them develop uh, what it's called in the doc industry is impact campaigns which to organizers is organizing with film (laughs) so we help them organize with film and we do a lot of the legwork that otherwise wouldn't be made possible we also help them fundraise to um, take it to scale and to help their visions happen so that's the impact kickstart project Mm -hmm. um We also will be starting a new project focused on immigration and telling a broader narrative about immigration. We have a call for media out now um, that's looking at how we can show what immigration in America looks like beyond just the crisis at the border, that immigrants are being attacked all over the nation, and they have just an incredibly diverse experience in this country um, that needs to be be told in a full way. Um, We're also, we have a focus on just transition and kind of illuminating the intersects between the economy, racial justice, and climate change. 
And so we're working with films that show those intersections and trying to lift up understanding of the interconnectedness of those to bring people together and help work for progress. Uh, we will be working extensively on just recovery and um, that will begin in 2019. We're also gonna have a big focus later next year on increasing involvement of young audiences. So where, um, where can listeners go uh, to find out more about what you guys are doing? So they can go to workingfilms.org um, and they can also look at our social media and it's oh, yeah. our media. handles on all social media are at working films on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, we also, when you go to our website, we have a subscribe. If you just scroll down below the picture, there's a place where you can put your email address to sign up for updates and we share all of our news. And like I said, we work all over the country, but um, everything that we do has a place in North Carolina. We do our most deep and extensive work in North Carolina. And a lot of times that will ripple out um, or it always just has a presence in the place that we call home. Um, and then we are, our offices in North Carolina and Wilmington and in Asheville. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you to Working Films for talking to us. I think that about does it for our probably last show in 2018. From an undisclosed location. Broadcasting now from an undisclosed secret location. And you know what? I'm, I'm not going to ever reveal it. <laughs> I, so I, if, if people were waiting for me to like divulge where we've been yeah. broadcasting from all this time, Our I hate to tell you. Our listener, millions listeners I, are, you will are never, on the edge of their seat. You will never, ever know. And in fact, Matthew doesn't even know. He's blindfolded <laughs> before he is brought in here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I apologize for that, but we just Fine. can't take any chances, yeah. you know. I understand. Right. How was, in, in three words, 2018? Oh, my God. (laughs) All right, we'll leave it there. Happy New Year, y'all. Yeah, enjoy. Enjoy.